0: Thank you, Amy. Thank you, Alex, for blessing us. Just kidding, Alex, he's turning into a regular Ira Sankey. I don't think he knew, as uh, he, he and I knew about the same amount of hymns, I think, when we both started leading music, and I appreciate so much him out of his comfort zone. Well, you got my two favorite guys back there. I just like to go back to that slide every now and then as we make our way through the book of Revelation. These are my most favorite guys that are illustrated there. We're on our tour through the book. Part 25, I know it seems uh, a lot less than that, but uh, we're in chapter 18, verses 1 through 20. You can turn there in your copy of God's Word if you'd like. And as we begin chapter 18, as you're turning there, we're really entering into the last of the last days. So as you start to read through these passages, realize we're speaking of the very last of the last days of earth as we understand it and of the kingdoms of the earth as we understand them, and of history as we've seen it, and what we will see unfold in front of us. And last time we were together, we studied religion during the tribulation, particularly as it makes its change to the worship of the Antichrist. And so going from the false church, the harlot as it's referred to, to the worship of the Antichrist, chapter 18 deals with taking us back over another question that is asked, and what's going on in the world at this time, and the economics of the tribulation, particularly at the end of the tribulation, the impact all the judgments will have on economics, and God's final judgment on Babylon itself, and the world system. And in your notes, right at the top, you can see Babylon is the name for the final world system. It's also actually a system and a place. So it's good to remember that, and although that can be confusing at times, I think it's important to remember that it is the name of the final world system. That's how the Scripture uses it, but it's also a place. Now, I was trying to think of a few illustrations that could help us see that. We have that in the world right now, and so here are some that can maybe, uh, although not perfectly illustrate, uh, can help us. Wall Street, for instance. Wall Street is an actual place. It's also a system. And so we have that same idea going on. There's a few others. How about Washington? Washington. Our proximity there, we understand Washington is a place, it's also a system, we understand how that is. The UN uh, is a place, it's also a system, uh, maybe more appropriately even for our study here, Hollywood. Hollywood is a place and also a system of the way things are done. And so uh, it's, it's like that, a much greater extent, of course, but perhaps that helps. Now, let's look at verse 1 of uh, for chapter 18, if you would, and we'll just dig right into our, our study together. After these things, I saw another angel. So you have a time stamp there, and I like to watch for those. It helps us see the chronology as it unfolds, and as John is seeing and and understanding what's going on, the Lord's revealing these things to him in order. After these things, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was illumined with his glory. Let's stop right there. This is a different angel from the bold judgments. Uh, His appearance, once again, reminds us of the power and the beauty of of these created beings. And perhaps the attention of the world will be drawn to him and his announcement, maybe because because of the fifth uh, bowl judgment and the darkness is over the kingdom of the Antichrist. So here comes this angel, uh, likely as we unfold chronologically, this angel comes and makes this announcement. Uh, we still have these cumulative bowl judgments uh, taking f- effect on the earth here at the very end of the tribulation. And he makes this announcement, and he is very shine- he's shining and given illumination, and so attention perhaps is drawn on him for that. But regardless, he gets the attention of the world, and he cries out, verse 2, with a mighty voice, and he says, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. Let's stop right there. Now, when we read in chapter 14, verse 8, that told us it was coming. Isaiah 21.9, the prophet there, told us of the fall of Babylon in 689 B.C. and then later in 539 B.C. But this is the final fall of Babylon, the place. This is the enemy of God where idolatry began, which has been propagated throughout the whole world, but it's going to find its best days in the tribulation time. It has really fallen here at the end of days. And remember I told you we're at the last of the last days as we start this passage. We're seeing in order the things that are taking place. And then it describes the city and uh, the system. It describes that a little bit here. And the angel is going to go back and fill in some information and some detail. And you can kind of tell by the change in the tense here. It says, uh, even though it says, Fal- Fallen father is Babylon the great. Now the angel is going to roll back the time a little bit. Now listen to what the angel says. She has become. So in that language, taking in what has occurred in this last section of the tribulation. She has become a dwelling place of demons and a prison of every unclean spirit, and a prison of every unclean and hateful bird. Let's stop right there. The place is overrun with demons, in other words. Demons are taking over the world. That shouldn't surprise us. Many of the judgments we saw included demons who were being loosed and allowed to roam and torment men who uh, were the unredeemed. And so it shouldn't surprise us that this is still the case, particularly at the end of the tribulation, that demons will be running around. And the word prison there is the word for to guard, Go on to the next slide there, Will, if you would. Let's, uh, let's catch up here. I'm sorry, I didn't see that we were... All right, now, uh, demons are all over the world. The word prison is that word to guard, so it's dwelled in by demons, guarded by demons, guarded by all the unclean spirits. These are demons who dwell in people. these are demons who didn't keep their first abode. They're dwelling in people and uh, acting out through human bodies. They're guarded as well by buzzards and other carrion-eating birds because there's so much death that goes on. So lots of those are around the city. Verse 3, For all the nations have drunk... uh, So you see how this cumulative effect, it's telling what's been going on. It's kind of filling in the details for us. For all the nations have drunk of the wine of the passion of her immorality. And the kings of the earth have committed acts of immorality with her. The merchants of the earth have become rich by the wealth of first sensuality. Now, just as in the false religion of the tribulation, and it drew its followers in because of sensuality and opulence and hedonism and easy redemption and all of those things, uh, in the same way, uh, the false religion throughout, of course, all the ages has always done that uh, to an extent. It just saw its perfection in the tribulation time as John's unfolded this story for us. But as we as that's been the draw for the religious, false religions. So the economics of the tribulation are going to draw in the kings of the world, it says. They've been drawn there, uh, the rich, the powerful, those who rule along with everyone else, by mainly materialism. That's the draw. materialism, uh, sensuality, selfishness, hedonism, vile entertainment, personal satisfaction, self-centeredness, all the things that the culture uses the media to attract us to it. Uh, the culture has always lured people that way. It's not hard to imagine that that would be the case in its finest hour during the Tribulation time. We're rapidly approaching the Super Bowl in the playoff games, wild card games now, and, and all, the, all all of our uh, uh, advertisements are being amped up. Everybody's looking for the one key one that's going to catch everybody's attention. But they're all geared for the same thing, are they not? There's always the draw of the shinier, the faster, the more powerful, the more comfortable, the smaller, the bigger, whatever But it's always for something we don't have. That's the draw. Uh, Materialism is the draw. The bling of the world, if you will. But that is the draw of Babylon. That's the draw of the economics of the tribulation time of uh, the Antichrist. And so the angel kind of fills us in. The nations have drunk of the wine of the passion of her immorality. Verse 5. And the kings of the earth have committed acts of immorality with her. They've sold themselves for these things. They've given over to the worship of these things. These things are most important in their life and based on of course the world always does this based on considered an axiomatic statement statement, you're worth it take care of yourself right you're worth it do it for yourself Uh, take take care make sure you have what you need and so uh, that's always been the draw it finds its finest hour of course though in the tribulation now look at verse 4 I heard another voice from heaven saying come out of her my people so that you will not participate in her sins and receive of her plagues let's stop right there that comment is from the Lord. It rings pretty familiar to us, does it not? It's basically the same thing that was told to Noah, isn't it? And it's the same thing that was told to Lot, and it is, the Isaiah, Jeremiah, they say the same thing to the Jew, and it could be called, it could be a call to repentance and salvation, but I think it's more likely a call to the saved Jew and to the saved Gentile to come out of Babylon before God destroys it, because it's an actual destruction at the end of the tribulation time where the city itself is completely consumed. Now look at verse 5. Come out of her, it says, so you do not uh, receive of her plagues, so you're not going to be there in that uh, destruction. Verse 5 says, For her sins have piled up as high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. I love that wording, and anytime God remembers something, remember that's not because he forgot something. All right, uh, God doesn't forget anything. Uh, but for, as we saw in Romans chapter two, verse four, remember, for long periods of time, God is kind, and for long periods of time, God is long-suffering, and for long periods of time, He is tolerant. That means He doesn't uh, He doesn't give to sin immediately as it deserves. He doesn't immediately kill people right when they sin. He does this for long periods of time. He is patient. He's kind uh, for long periods of time uh, to allow people to come to repentance. But eventually, there comes an end to that patience. And so, as it says, her sins have piled up as high as heaven and God has remembered, so he has come; He's drawn to mind the fact that he has been long-suffering and patient for all this time, and although uh, he doesn't remember the iniquities of his own people because that punishment has been put on Christ for those who have, uh, in his perfect justice, rejected his gracious patience, uh, he does enact his wrath on them. And so that is exactly where we're headed now. look at verse 6. Pay her back, it says. Pay her back, even as she has paid, and give back to her double, or in fullness, according to her deeds. In the cup which she has mixed, mix twice as much for her, verse 7, to the degree that she glorified herself and lived sensuously, to the same degree give her torment and mourning. Let's stop right there. We've always said that the punishment always fits the crime. The Lord's always just in the way he delivers the punishment. It's never more than is deserved. It's exactly what's deserved. Uh, The uh, wording is pay her back. So exactly blow for blow, pound for pound, blood for blood. It's all given back and paid back to her. In the cup that she used to deal out her immorality, in the measure that she used, uh, this world system, this is the measure that's paid back to the same degree, according to her deeds. The cup that she's mixed, uh, the immorality that was mixed there, is paid back to her. The punishment will fit the crime. The cup of sin, if you will, has overflowed. That's exactly what we're talking about. And the cup of wrath will overflow too. The word double has that sense of an overflowing cup. Now, let's go on in verse 7. It says, to the degree that she's glorified herself and lives sensuously, to the same degree, give her torment, And mourning, for she says in her heart, I sit as a queen, and I am not a widow, and will never see mourning. Stop right there. So, of course, it shouldn't surprise us that the world system led by the Antichrist would think itself invincible. And even though, uh, of course, all the things around this. city have been collapsing, and the judgments have poured out on the world, and it appears that things are not going well, they still sit in this deluded state and think somehow they'll be able to escape the righteous judgment of the Lord and do whatever they want and flaunt the Lord's patience and kindness and still be okay, but uh, a world without Jesus has always said that, right? I don't need anything, I'm self-sufficient. That's that deluded state of this shadow life that most people live in who don't know Christ, and they don't understand the depth of their own sin, and they don't understand the depth of their own infraction against the Lord's graciousness, and people live there, well, this is exactly where Babylon will be. Don't worry. Everything's going to be fine. This is not going to be a problem. Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon said that of himself uh, and about the city, Isaiah 47, 8. Those very same things in the Babylon of Nebuchadnezzar were repeated. But, of course, the bridegroom of Babylon is who? That's the Antichrist. And she says, I won't be destroyed. I'm a queen. But that's not going to be the case. Look at verse 8, if you would. For this reason in one day, and once again you have a, an idea of a time sequence, a short period of time, very very close period of time, her plagues will come, pestilence and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire, for the Lord God who judges her is strong. And we understand that, don't we? And he's able to accomplish what he says he will accomplish, and that's what he says is going to happen and her final destruction will come at the hands of the Lord himself. He calls out the ones that he, who belong to him out of this city. And just like Sodom and Gomorrah, the final destruction is not going to take long. It's going to be executed. Now, look verse 9, if you would. The kings of the earth, who committed acts of immorality and lived sensuously with her, will weep and lament over her when they see the smoke of her burning. Let's stop right there. The nations are saddened Because she's fallen. Why? Because that's the place of pleasure. That's the place of fulfilling all of uh, human desires. And they begin to see this whole system collapse. Everybody's economy collapses. All the money collapses. The banks collapse. Everything goes. And uh, we saw, I think, as I said last week, we saw a sense of that, did we not? And the Lord has given us snapshots of that as we've gone through history. And certainly two years ago... Uh, in our time of our uh, beginning of our, the recession that we're in now, when banks began to fail and, and people wondered about our currency and our economy and uh, banks around the world and countries went into bankruptcy and had to be bailed out and loaned and so that they could survive, we saw just a, I think, a little glimpse of kind of the issues that will be at hand during uh, the tribulation period, both at the coming of the Antichrist initially and then at the end. And so uh, you can just say this, the consumers are going to be distraught. Consumers are distraught. You can find that in your notes. Look at verse 10. The consumers are distraught. Standing at a distance because of the fear of her torment. So here's how we know that John's telling us about a location as well as a system. So they're standing back away from the city itself. So they're standing at a distance because of the fear of her torment. Here's what they say. Saying, woe, woe, the great city Babylon, the strong city, for in one hour your judgment has come. Stop right there. The judgment is very short. It doesn't take a whole long time, and once God's people are out of the city, it is burned up and destroyed. And then we get to see what everyone is so sad about. Verse 11, the retailers get upset too. So not only are the consumers distraught, the consumers of the world, and the retailers are upset. Verse 11, if you would look there with me. And the merchants of the earth weep and mourn over her because no one buys their cargoes anymore. Let's stop right there. The transportation system is falling apart. Nobody cares about that anymore. Uh, but they're all just trying to survive. The world is wrecked. Uh, the judgments have been poured out. Babylon is being destroyed. So who's going shopping then? Who's going to the mall then? Nobody's concerned about that kind of thing. Look at verse 12. Cargos of gold and silver and precious stones and pearls and fine linen and purple and silk and scarlet and every kind of citron wood and every article of ivory And every article made from very costly wood and bronze and iron and marble, verse 13, and cinnamon and spice and incense and perfume and frankincense and wine and olive oil and fine flour and wheat and cattle and sheep and cargoes of horses and chariots and slaves and human lives. So all these things that drove the economy of this last world system, Many of these things, the upper end of the economy, the things that people pamper themselves with, the things that people enjoy, uh, who indulge themselves in, everyone who deals in this type of thing, uh, humans' lives and slavery and all of the things that go on that drive the wicked world system, these things find their best days, if you will, in the tribulation. All of these things are going to be brought uh, to an end. These are all things that have brought temporary satisfaction to men of all ages, but bring satisfaction to this final world system. It's the things that we think are so important now. These are the things that are important then. But who cares? Because it's all destroyed in one hour. Now look at verse 14. In a short time it's destroyed. Verse 14, The fruit you long for has gone from you, and all the things that were luxurious and splendid have passed away from you, and men will no longer find them. What do we see here? Everything that made wife worth living for the ungodly is taken away. Not even the most basic of items will be available. That's not supposed to be the lifestyle of the redeemed to desire all those things, is it? And do you think the redeemed will be troubled? at the destruction of the world system, those who've come to faith during the tribulation? Do you think they'll be mourning the loss of Babylon, that they'll be uh, those who are saying, whoa, whoa, you know, no more cinnamon, no more spices, no more costly wood and iron and marble, we can't build anything anymore? Do you think that's what they'll be saying? They won't be saying that. Because true saints don't desire those things more than uh, godliness. Now, I'd like you to hold there and turn to one of my favorite passages, Matthew 6.24, that deals with this. Because the, the idea of the redeemed is uh, the understanding of the redeemed and the Lord are the same, but they will be the same in this tribulation period as they are now. Uh, Matthew chapter 6 verse 24, just hold your place in Revelation, turn to Matthew 6:24. I won't have any slides on this, so if you just read along, the understanding of the redeemed is always different than the world. They're not lamenting. Uh, these things, the understanding of the redeemed doesn't lament. You know, though we may be in difficult times during a recession, we don't lament about those types of things because we have a long view of history, and we know that the Lord takes care of us. But look at Matthew 6:24, just to remind you, as Jesus' admonition was, "No one can serve two masters." And who are the two masters? Either will he hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. Here's the clarification: You can't serve God and wealth. Now look at verse 25. And I think this is an important little uh, side note for us. And so let's stick with it because I think we come away with the right attitude that will be, I think, embraced by those uh, tribulation saints as well. For this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. And then this question, is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? And the redeemed can say yes but the world doesn't always say yes does it because that is what sums up the pursuit of many in the world clothing and food and housing and things those things make up the life of those many of the redeemed and they should never that should never encroach into the life of the redeemed now he's not saying you need to be poor he's not saying it's not okay to be rich he's not saying that you're more spiritual if you don't have anything he's just saying that we don't pursue those things they are not the things uh, that bring us satisfaction and they are not the reason to be worried. Now look at verse 26. Look at the birds of the air that they do not sow nor reap nor gather into barns and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And what's the rhetorical answer? Of course you are. And who of you by being worried can end a single hour to his life? And what's the rhetorical answer? No one. Verse 28, And why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. Verse 30, But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you? You of little faith, Do not worry then, saying, What will we eat? What will we drink? Or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. For your Heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. Isn't that great? He knows that we have need of those things. It's not wrong to have those things. He supplies them richly. Verse 33. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Isn't that marvelous? That's the attitude of the redeemed today. That'll be the attitude of the redeemed during the tribulation time. The Lord will say, come out of Babylon before I destroy her. And they're not going to be turning around uh, like Lot's wife and mourning the loss of the great system and the great city and all of the immorality that went along with these things. Look at verse 15 now, back in Revelation 18. Once again, the angel's filling in all of this detail for us, all the things that have been going on in this last half of the tribulation. Once again, you see this, the tense of these verbs. The merchants of all these things who became rich from her will stand at a distance because of the fear of her torment. Once again, it's an actual place and a system. So they're standing at a distance so they don't get caught up in it. Weeping and mourning. Obviously, some will be caught up in it uh, who are in the city, but some will not be. Verse 16, saying, Woe! Woe the great city! She who was clothed in fine linen and purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls. For in one hour such great wealth has been laid waste. What are they mourning for? Yeah, all the wealth, right? All the things. Woe war- all the wealth. Wow. And every shipmaster and every passenger and sailor and as many as make their living by the sea stood at a distance. And were crying out as they saw the smoke of her burning, saying, What city is like the great city? Now, beloved, these are things that we say about heaven. And these are things that are being said about Babylon. So doesn't surprise us. This is, this is the uh, heaven on earth for the unredeemed. We've never seen wealth like this before. Now, what, what city is like this city? Now, verse 19. And they threw dust on their heads and were crying out, weeping and mourning, saying, Whoa, woe! the great city in which all who had ships at sea uh, became rich by her wealth, for in one hour she has been laid waste. And the whole thing is just as sad a scene as you can ever imagine. As they mourn the loss, and people are throwing dust on their heads, and there's this great weeping and mourning, and they're crying out, Alas, alas, whoa, whoa, what are we going to do? This whole system is all collapsed. Everything that they thought would survive. And you can, of course, draw a parallel to the great market crash in 1929, the people killing themselves and throwing themselves out of windows and all this thing that led to the Great Depression and, of course, our Great Recession in 2008. And all the, uh, the woe and all the doomsaying and all the things that occurred are just kind of precursors to how great this one will be. But I was just kind of comment, thinking about that. I remember uh, I, I used to enjoy listening to Larry Burkett. He's with the Lord now but he was a well-respected financial advisor and the founder of Crime Financial Ministries. He had some comments on materialism, which is really, that's, that's the religion here. Uh, not only are they worshipping the Antichrist, they love things and the pursuit of things and the pampering of themselves, and that's really the drive of, of uh, marketing, is to get us to desire things that we either don't need or certainly don't, uh, don't uh, want, but want us to have them for some reason. But anyway, he had these comments in an interview He shared some significant concerns about materialism in America, especially in the American church. And in pointing to Matthew 6.24, we just read that, he said, quote, Christians are trying to serve God and mammon. That's his observation. Burkett noted that 80% of Americans owe more than they own. He said this trend is prevalent in churches as well. Quote, Christians pay more in interest, 9.8% of their income, than they give to the church. Southern Baptists, he said, give 2.3% of their income on the average. He noted in a typical congregation of 100 families, 37 families give nothing at all to the church, 37 on an average. In summary of his concerns, Burkett mused, Christ said the greatest threat to Christianity is not the affairs of the world. The greatest threat is materialism. You can't serve God, he said, and wealth. And I think if, if anything, of course, we understand that the Lord is exercising His judgment here on Babylon, but if anything, it should remind us that all the things we amass to ourselves are just going to be burned up anyway. And so we don't be, we're not consumed about that type of thing. But anyway, we certainly don't want to be among the throng uh, if, if it was possible that we're not going to be there, but among the throng that would be lamenting the loss of Babylon. But it appears this whole thing is just a saddest scene here in uh, verses 15 and following, as you can imagine. And people are throwing dust on their heads and crying, whoa, whoa. Well, all everyone on earth is doing that. Verse 20 says, in heaven, what are they saying? Look at verse 20. And look at the stark distinction between what's going on on earth and what's going on in heaven. What's it say, verse 20? First word, rejoice. Everybody on earth is throwing dust on their heads. Whoa, whoa, you know, what are we going to do? The whole thing is ruined. We don't have all the stuff that we had. There's no way to get it anymore. Nobody's bringing anything in and out of the city. Everything's ruined. And heaven, Rejoice. Rejoice, it just kind of tells you how out of touch earth is always with heaven, right? We don't want to be those kinds of believers, do we? Out of touch with heaven's priority? And so heaven says, Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, because, why? God has pronounced judgment for you against her. Isn't that That's beautiful language, isn't it? And let's get some perspective on that. Of course, heaven is rejoicing while earth is mourning, which just shows once again how out of touch we all are with heaven. And there is, once again, remember all the souls of the martyred saints under the altar, chapter 6, saying, How long, O Lord, uh, until you judge the inhabitants uh, of the earth uh, for our, uh, to avenge our blood? And, of course, heaven's not rejoicing that people are doomed to hell. They're not rejoicing. The Lord doesn't delight in the death of a wicked person. Scripture tells us over and over again he desires that all come to salvation. Uh, they're only rejoicing that God's justice and righteousness have prevailed. That's why they're, That's why they're rejoicing. No longer the false system set up anymore. No more uh, idolatry. No more falseness. No more harlotry. Uh, none of that stuff. Uh, righteousness has prevailed. Uh, those that were done injustice, all the saints that have been slain, the uh, hundreds of thousands of saints that have been slain throughout the years for their faith, all of that is all being revenged. And there's going to be an example, verse 20 of, or 21 rather, of the finality of this destruction unlike other times when Babylon fell and rose again. Here's going to be the finality, and we're going to look at that next week because we're out of time. But verse 21 is pretty, uh, pretty amazing. Just look there, and you kind of see this is, the, this is the end. It's not going to happen anymore. It's not rising. Then a strong angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, listen, so will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will not be found any longer. And so you see kind of this finality. That's why I said when we started, we're in the end of the end of days as we get to the story here. And although the angel goes back and fills in what's been happening with Babylon and how it interacted with the kings of the world and the rich and all the things people desired, all that was offered, uh, we see it's moving rapidly towards its own destruction. You get right to the end of the end of days and we're going to look at that, that statement by the angel next time. And some other things that are going to be missing in these last days right before Jesus comes back as a result of all the judgments And the destruction of Babylon but we're going to see that uh, next time and then we're going to see a response from heaven and so we'll have a good time together next Sunday night and invite you back. Let's uh, be dismissed in a word of prayer. Lord, we thank you today for an opportunity to be in your word. We're grateful today that we can rejoice where heaven rejoices and Lord, that we'll not be so consumed with the things of the world and the things that uh, it offers uh, that we forget to, to rejoice when those things pass away. So Lord, thank you, first of all, for giving us richly all things to enjoy, as you told us in Timothy, and help us, as you told us, to be rich in good deeds and ready to share. Help us to hold on very loosely to the things that you have given to us, for they all belong to you, we understand that, that's a principle from your word, that you own the earth and everything in it, and we're grateful that you've given us the stewardship of the things that we have. Help us to use them for your own kingdom and for your own glory. Thank you for supplying our needs. Thank you that we have such a comfortable existence. Many, many who've claimed your name have lived in times when they had no such thing and yet still found you to be faithful. And so, Lord, help us to be those types of people, finding you faithful whether we have a little or a lot, rejoicing in the fact that someday it'll all be burned up and you will reward those who faithfully serve you. We look forward to that kingdom, the one that will never end. And It's on that thought we give praise to your Son. In Jesus' name. Against people said.